the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. We all know that the shipping industry needs to decarbonise, but the industry is finally confronting the detail. Countries meeting at the IMO next week have five plans for carbon price policies in front of them, and it's worth taking a look at where the devil is hiding in that detail. Island states and the International Chamber of Shipping, they are pushing for carbon levies. Norway and European Union members prefer a cap-and-trade scheme, while China and Japan have proposed more complex rebates. Let's be clear, this is not a simple choice and we're not waiting for the white smoke to emerge from Albert Embankment's chimneys to see which of those options they've chosen. There is a long road ahead of us yet. But there is at least now some optimism that's worth talking about. And trust me, that's not a statement that you're going to hear us talk about in the Lloyd's List newsroom all that often, so it is worth delving into. The fact that we're even having these conversations now is in itself a significant achievement in my view. The agenda set for next week's IMO meeting is a huge change from the technical fare that we've been used to. And while the pressure is absolutely on and it's never been greater, there is a real feeling that progress of sorts is finally now being made. The sluggish and somewhat secretive IMO is finally set to tackle fundamental questions about how to measure emissions cuts and how steep the curve to zero emissions in shipping should be. But while states are sure to argue over the best approach and about how much to spend on helping developing countries, the work is in many ways just beginning now. So, to unpick where we are in this slow march towards shipping's decarbonisation revolution, I've drafted in three experts to distill down the future of climate change regulation in shipping in under 20 minutes, or there or thereabouts at least. Joining me this week, Tristan Smith, the Director of University Maritime Advisory Services, UMass, Edmund Hughes, a consultant and former IMO Emissions Chief, and Mads Peter Zacco, the Head of Industry Transition at the Merce McKinney Moller Centre for Zero Carbon Shipping. We started with Tristan, who, as regular readers of Lloyd's List and listeners to the podcast will know too well, has been somewhat critical of the pace behind the industry's regulatory drive in the past. However, we found him to be pretty upbeat in the wake of recent meetings, dismissing those who insisted that there was absolutely no chance of getting a midterm measure out of the IMO before 2030. This is a question of political will, he argues, and the fact that we've now moved to a point where member states are demanding greenhouse gas pricing and countries like Japan, a state not noted for making hyperbolic statements within the IMO, are saying that we now need to implement these measures by 2025, well, that's significant. So I started by asking Tristan whether the industry should take note of its optimism. I don't think it's about optimism or pessimism. It's not about testing the, the mood of someone who watches a meeting and try to use the mood of that individual to, to give you guidance on whether something's going to happen. I think the point is that the conditions, the preconditions are that we know are required, that we can map out are are being satisfied. So we can see investment going into hydrogen and ammonia. We can we can see that happening at, at large scale projects being announced every week. We can see a regulatory environment at the national level appearing. And the bit that we needed as well, the IMO, the multilateral solution, is maturing and it's on track. And um, and I think it's about pointing to the fact that it's moving in a positive direction, that some of the solutions that can provide equitable transition at the same time as mitigation are appearing. And and uh, I don't 
yeah, I don't want my emotions to be anything that people use to to determine what they do next, but they should look at the evidence. So let's look at that evidence. Why, given the history of glacial progress to this point, should we be more optimistic about the prospect of an international agreement to decarbonise shipping from the IMO? The noises coming out of last month's intercessional meeting were some of the most optimistic we have seen in several years of naysaying and doom-mongering. So why was Tristan Upbeat coming out of those sessions? I think there were encouraging signs going into it, as well as coming out of it. Um, the encouraging sign going into it was the number of different proposals um, that had been brought forwards that had quite a few commonalities. Commonalities in their uh, use of, of carbon pricing or greenhouse gas pricing to create a signal and generate revenues. and. Um, and then use those revenues both to help the transition happen and for purposes of equitable transition to help developing countries who have uh, impacts that they experience because of higher costs of fuels, um, but also to help um, developing countries who need to be part of the transition as well. We know there are many countries that will be able to produce hydrogen at relatively low cost and that production needs to grow um, rapidly. And so uh, we need we need mechanisms that can stimulate that. As well as the, as well as it being stimulated in, in the developed world. So I thought um, what was really encouraging was the fact that there were so many good proposals from countries with different perspectives. We had a, a, a China-led proposal submitted by China, Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, um, for a carbon pricing mechanism, and and I was not expecting to see something uh, of that policy measure design from that group of countries. Uh, as soon as as soon as this point in time, as soon as 2022, and having seen earlier submissions by countries like Marshalls and Solomons, um, but also the Japanese proposal on a fee-based mechanism, you know these are all architecturally quite common um, concepts that that use price signals and, and revenues, and that was very encouraging. And I think it's one of the reasons why that that meeting then reached its conclusion with um, it, it able to express that we should now develop. Um, a package, a basket of measures that included greenhouse gas pricing. So the, the output of the meeting expressed the consensus that had been reached through the week and as a result of the submissions from a broad range of different countries that were supported by further countries um, who could see their merits. We're going to be seeing a lot of haggling over what the process looks like there will be interminable debates over whether we should be looking at $100, $150 or $300 as a carbon levy, or whether we should be looking at how to implement a cap and trade scheme, much like the EU is. The question is, of course, are we really debating the perfect detail and the infrastructure here, or are we looking at whether it's just a case of getting something agreed as quickly as possible so we can get on with the job of reducing emissions, however imperfectly? Are we looking for the perfect or the good here? Yeah, it's a it's a classical problem and climate change, unfortunately, or rather the late time that we're starting our serious endeavours against climate change and its risks. Um, don't give us the don't give us the luxury of adopting something that isn't going to be effective immediately. We need to we, I mean, the real challenge that the IMO has is it needs to get things right at the point of adoption, because that's already going to be late in the process. 25, 26, and it needs to be effective in the first round. Not, it can't do what CII has done and adopt something with no enforcement and with very weak stringency. That means that um, it'll provide 
an admin headache for five years and then maybe get strengthened and actually drive technology and behavior change. Um, we need to we need to have something that can that can do the first phase. I mean, the good news is that we don't need all ships to be running on ammonia in 2026. What we need is a subset of the fleet by 2030 to be using that um, uh, that or an equivalent zero emission fuel and and for the incentivization of the supply chains that we urgently need to develop to be in place. And that can happen with a policy that isn't a universal fuel standard that drives that change. It can happen with a policy that that has some revenue, some revenue use, and maybe some expectation of future stringency in a fuel standard. So it doesn't it doesn't create fear at this point when it's introduced when we still have those supply chains and technologies developing. So I I think um, I think we don't to, just to try and re-answer your question in a, in a more concise way. We have to we have to get it right first time. We have a very short period of time before we need to be adopting policy so that the detail needs to go and we and we have to attend to both the architecture and the detail in exactly the right way um, and address some of the equitable transition issues at the same time as dealing with mitigation so that's why there's such a mountain of work to be cut out but there's also a huge political will and urgency and good um, engagement from industry and and those things can work together if we um, if we try as a former emissions policy chief inside the IMO, Edmund Hughes, who now acts as a consultant, is well versed in the fine art of deciphering IMO politics. And while it's fair to say he does recognise the positive progress being made, he is much more circumspect than Tristan when it comes to optimism. Declan Bush, Lloyd's sustainability editor, picks up the conversation with Edmund. The, the take I had was that while the, the Marine Environment Protection Committee and its intercessional working group look like they have agreed on the need for an, a, a carbon price of some form, they're nowhere near how to do it. Um, so what are some of the challenges for that we might face uh, in, the, in the years ahead uh, on, on the, um, the trading floor, if you like? Obviously, over my period of time at uh, the IMO, I, I experienced many discussions and deliberations about um, uh, measures and, and metrics and, and how we might go forward on reducing carbon dioxide emissions or greenhouse gas emissions from international shipping. And, and, and I think, I mean, for me, I'm afraid uh, the, the sort of, there's a sort of euphoria at the end of the intersessional meeting about identifying some market-based measures uh, and yes I, I do I do to some degree concur with the view that that now many more governments are talking about using some form of carbon pricing um, but I don't see any I mean this, this was a working group as well we have to remember that of, of the marine environmental protection committee so it wasn't the full committee although there was obviously it's well attended I mean many delegations um, uh, you know, we still have not reached a point where there is a there is a, a market based measure that's been agreed, and 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 we still have several proposals on the table. In fact, we're having more proposals added to the table than we had ten years ago, and it was. And you know, we have to remember the discussion was suspended in 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 2013 um, when we couldn't reconcile, which is still the big issue, which is how we reconcile this thing called common but differentiated responsibilities and and respective capabilities which is essentially that developing countries see that the historic uh, emissions of, of developed countries should have to be somehow accounted for when it comes to uh, future measures um, uh, applied to, 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 to reduce carbon dioxide and car greenhouse gases. And that, and that, that of course, is a, is a sort of 
a real challenge for a, a body like the IMO, which which essentially regulates ships, not states. And and when you're when you're trying to develop regulations that regulate ships, um, irrespective of a flag state, but then have to then take into account um, how you then uh, reconcile this the CBDR principle, and how you then uh, you know place a greater burden on developing countries over developed countries. It just complicates matters to even more. I mean, it's already a complicated discussion about a market metric um, to be applied or measure to be applied to, to shipping, international shipping, which is already a very complicated sector. Um, but to then add this additional level of complexity, frankly, you know, it, it, it's something that's been there all along. It's always there. It's there. There's the, the, it's there as a, a governing principle in in the initial strategy uh, to be cognizant of this principle, along with obviously no more favourable treatment, which is the non-discriminatory principle, which applies to all international shipping. Um, but, you know, trying to get that that, that principle reconciled is it's a huge challenge. And I, and I still, frankly, I still can't, in, in the deliberations, it's still it's still very much there. And, and, and I just can't see it being something that's going to be re- readily reconciled very, very quickly. Anyone who's watched the last um, several IMO meetings will have noted that they focused almost exclusively on this this one question of how to make any um, mid-term carbon pricing measure fair to developing countries. Um, and it looks a, looks as you're nodding now. Looks as though this might this might go the same way. But the fact that some that more countries in the last six months, such as uh, Japan and notably China, who's been quite sceptical of of these green initiatives or has tended to vote down um, ambitious climate change measures uh, in in you know UN forums like the IMO, they've they've put their own plans on the table now. Um, and some people have said this is this is a good sign of progress. But at the same time, they they're quite a bit more complicated than some of the other plans, and they also add more options that. 175 member states now have to agree to. So, do you see these extra plans as as a step forward, or or a, an, just an extra bit of complexity? Well, I, I think I mean developing countries have already acknowledged the the use of market mechanisms um, or measures, whatever one refers to them as, you know, through the Paris Agreement. And and we obviously had a lot lot of discussion was going on prior to the COP26 in Glasgow about formalising the or finalising the the sort of uh, the arrangements for those. So so I think developing countries have always recognised that the 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 basis, and and in fact. You know, many, many developing countries are have plans to have their own market measures or emission training systems, and China has been one of them um, uh, in, for national emissions. Um, the problem comes when you start dealing with the international sectors and, and, and where the jurisdictions are. And as we're seeing with with the discussion going on with the European emission training system and, and the in, integration of, of shipping into that, you know where where should the scope of that 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 those emissions lie? Should it be 50% of the voyage? Should it be just inter inter EU? Uh, and that that debate is still ongoing, and it, it is it, it's it's hugely complicated. And 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 I think going back to your point about the proposal on the table from various countries, that's just right. And and I think what it recognises is that is that is that to achieve this uh, energy transition, which is what we're in at the moment, there is going to be some need for some. Some sort of signal that the 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 ships that take a, a an initial uh, uh, response in terms of uh, first move don't get penalised by people who wait and wait and wait and and I think that this is something again which is part of the the discussion is how you're gonna 
ensure that, that, that those ships that, uh, and those companies that want to be pro, you know, progress faster can, can go ahead. But at the same time, we ensure we, we maintain the level playing field in international shipping, which is, is again, a fundamental of, of, of the of, of shipping and international regulation. This is why the IMO exists. I mean, the IMO is there to to ensure a level playing field globally on on, on shipping regulation, and and so any measures or any any regulation, whatever it comes along, has to ensure not only can it be applied and implemented equally to all ships, but it can be enforced. And and at the moment, again, the proposals that have been submitted seem, as you as you quite rightly point out, are adding increasing levels of complexity tying it into things like transport work now which as we're seeing with the you know and don't get me wrong I'm, I'm very much supportive of the short-term measures on energy efficiency i think you know that that is part of the 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 the, the, the staging post as it were towards you know decarbonization of the sector is to have greater energy efficiency measures applied to the sector but we can see already the lot the lot of discussion debate about which is the right appropriate metric for transport work to be applied to the not just whether it should be AER or EOI, but whether whether what do we apply to, to to passenger ships? What do we apply to other types of ships, work ships, uh, workboat sector? I mean, it is it's hugely complicated sector, and and and, and I think any measure that's going to come forward to 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 carbon price, if that's what the right term is, um, has to be simple. Frankly, I don't see how adding more and more complexity is going to help us move towards a a metric that a measure that is that is going to be readily implementable, frankly, and enforceable. So we've heard from those who are feeling upbeat. We've heard why the devil is still firmly entrenched in the detail. But what about the industry watching all this play out? One of the biggest frustrations for those watching this necessary but glacial debate play out over decades is that the industry has to carry on regardless and make multi-generational investments amid a regulatory set of plans that are still riddled with uncertainty. Declan picks up the conversation on a more pragmatic note with Mads Peter Zacco, Head of Industry Transition at the Maersk McKinney Moller Centre for Zero Carbon Shipping. We get that universal carbon price that the industry and, and big companies and, and charterers have called for to narrow the, the price gap with zero carbon fuels. Um, if I'm a normal shipping operator looking at all of this and trying to scratching my head, trying to make sense of, of what I should do, um, do you have any hints for me? Yeah, I guess I, I do. Um, and I think the piece of uh, advice would be uh, take it seriously because it is going to come. Uh, it may take a little bit longer than some of us would like, but decarbonization of shipping is coming because uh, the climate requires it. And in the meantime, you could say waiting for a large carbon tax uh, implemented by the IMO or other uh, tough legislation uh, coming in. Um, I think there are a lot of things that the individual ship owners can do in the meantime. And I think there's basically four things that, that I would do uh, quite quickly. And one is, of course, to make sure that the greenhouse gas emissions footprint of uh, of your company is measured well and it is being disclosed to the world around you so that everybody understands what the emissions footprint of, of, of the company is. Uh, secondly, um, you can set a, a target. Uh, so figure out what is a realistic target for, for decarbonization uh, and disclose that as well. Because that means that you are then giving a signal to your stakeholders that uh, you are taking this seriously and, and you are 
uh, willing to go down the path uh, and perhaps even be amongst the leaders in, in doing so. And I think that's good for, for you. It's good for your customers. It's good for your employees and it's good for your uh, shareholders ultimately. Third, you need to put together a good strategy for how you're going to then deliver on that target and uh, making sure that uh, all leaders in the industry are making their own decarbonization strategy and publicizing those uh, will be an incredibly strong and, and powerful instrument as well. And then fourthly, of course, deliver on those actions, deliver on that strategy by taking the steps that need to be taken now in terms of uh, reaping the benefits of energy efficiency uh, to, to start with, but also start planning for the future in terms of what will be the alternative fuels that you will be running on uh, a little bit later. So those are, you could say, basically four steps that you can implement immediately. Also, in a time when we are waiting for IMO to, you could say, implement uh, new legislation or, or the EU doing so. And that is where we will leave it for another week. We're releasing this slightly earlier than usual because of the Queen's Jubilee bank holiday weekend here in the UK. God bless you, ma'am. The extra time off, however, will give you plenty of time to study our excellent new special report on decarbonisation. I know, it's almost like we plan these things. Declan Bush, who you heard from there, um, has written, to my mind, the last word on where we stand on the decarbonisation debate in shipping, and I would humbly suggest that it is required reading for everybody in the industry. So head to loyslist.com for details, and if you're not a subscriber, then more for you. Get in touch, and I'll point in the direction of a very reasonable investment by way of a subscription. Find me at all the usual places, richard.mead at informer.com or on Twitter via at Lloyd's List Ed. For now, though, have a relaxing long weekend and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.